First Peter 4, verses 12 to 17. Uh, these verses are really the concluding remarks that Peter has on suffering, a theme that has been uh, a major theme throughout this letter of First Peter. And so we're going to consider this theme once more this morning and what Peter has to say to us about it. Um, so Ryan will come and read for us First Peter four twelve to seventeen. We'll then go to Matthew ten uh, twenty four to thirty one. John will read that for us. That these verses remind us that suffering is not an unusual thing for the Christian, but rather if you are someone who follows Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ says you will also suffer. So that means that these words in First Peter about suffering should apply to all of us who are in Jesus Christ. And so. Matthew 10 will remind us of that. Then we'll go to 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 12. Shauna will read that for us. That reminds us both, again, of the suffering that is promised to those who trust in Christ, but it's also a reminder of the amazing security that we have that comes through Jesus Christ. And then finally, we will have more words of security, of God's uh, faithful love for us from John 10, 27 to 30, and Pat will come up and read those words for us. So let's listen now to the reading of God's word. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Matthew 10, verses 24 through 31. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Second Timothy 1, 8 through 12. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immorality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. 
But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he what has been entrusted to me. John ten twenty seven through thirty. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Well, as we come to our text this morning, I think one of the first things we need to understand, if we're going to understand the Word of God this morning, is that as Christians, and really just as human beings in general, we live as part of a story that God himself is writing. The time that we live in today, God had planned out from even before the creation of the world, and the things that happen today are an outworking of that plan of God. Okay, God is not just a a distant God like the divine clockmaker, right, who kind of made everything and then sits up in the heavens and now he's just kind of watching to see what's going to happen with what I made. No, everything that's happening today is happening according to God's plan. Now, God in his wisdom hasn't explained to us everything about his plan. Why did he devise the times just as he devised them? Why did he set a certain length for everything that happened in the Old Testament? Why did he set a certain length for the ministry of Jesus? Why does he have a certain length to the church age right now before the coming of Jesus? We don't know the answers to these precise questions, but we do know that what is happening now is happening intentionally, according to God's will. We see this stated very clearly in our text this morning. In verse 12 of 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. We are not to be surprised at what's happening because it is happening according to the will of God. This is repeated at the end of our text, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Our suffering right now, the good things that happen in life, the bad things that happen in life, all these things happen according to God's will, according to the divine plan that God has set up. Now, I wanted to start this way because maybe the most challenging verse in our text this morning is verse 17. And I think what I've just said is an attempt to kind of make sense to help us enter into the mindset of what Peter is saying in verse 17. There Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now the household of God, Peter has spoken of before in his letter, is a reference to the church. Peter has called the church the spiritual house of God. This itself is a term taken from the Old Testament. The temple of God in the Old Testament was called the house of God. And so now Peter has said that the temple from the Old Testament is now the church of the New Testament. And this time for the judgment to begin at the household of God is a statement that judgment is beginning with the church. Peter is saying that certain times have been allotted according to the plan of God, according to the story that God is writing. And the time that God has allotted right now is a time of judgment. 
that is beginning with the household of God and that will one day conclude with the judgment of all things, all people, both living and dead. We see this reiterated in a phrase from last week that we didn't really have any time to look at, but if you look at the first phrase of 1 Peter 4, 7, Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Again, Peter is saying that God has been writing this story of redemption, the story of creation ever since Genesis 1-1, right? Where we read that God created the heavens and the earth in the very beginning. And everything that has happened since that creation is part of God's plan and part of his purpose to elevate the glory of his son, the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why the centerpiece of all of human history is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, is the son of God coming to earth. And the centerpiece of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, of God coming to earth, is Christ's death and his resurrection. Because it is there, it is on the cross of Christ, And on Jesus' resurrection from the dead, that the glory of God is most clearly on display. And how is the glory of God most clearly on display? It's most clearly on display because there at the cross is the clearest demonstration that we could ever have of the love of God. The clearest demonstration we could have of the love of God. And why is the cross the clearest demonstration of the love of God? Because, as the story of Scripture says, we, all of humanity, ever since the third chapter of the Bible, Adam and Eve, have been rebelling against God, have been making idols for ourselves, have been going our own way, have been hating God and hating one another, making kingdoms of our own design, of our own plan, all in rebellion against the perfect plan of God, the perfect story that God himself could write if we would have submitted to his will. And yet, instead of rejecting us, instead of just wiping us off the face of the earth, instead of maybe just going to a new planet and God saying, well, forget planet earth, I'll start again somewhere else. Instead of just, instead of just scratching off everything that he had done, when God came to earth in Jesus Christ, And when he died that death upon the cross, that was God saying, even though for generation after generation after generation, you have spat in my face, you have rebelled against me, you have hated me and hated one another, even though that is what you have done for thousands of years, I am now sending my son to bear the weight of all this sin, of all this rebellion, so that whoever trusts in him, whoever trusts in that sacrifice, will not know the judgment that this earth deserves, will not know the judgment that is indeed still coming upon this earth. Again, the judgment that Peter says has already begun, is beginning with the household of God, but will not come to an end until Jesus Christ returns and he himself has been given judgment by God the Father to judge the living and the dead according to what they have done. And so this judgment is still coming. And whether you, will, whether you will be pronounced righteous, innocent at that judgment, or whether you will be pronounced guilty in that judgment, all comes down to one thing. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Have you believed 
and the only Son sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. Have you received him? If you have received him, as Peter's saying, you will still be judged. You will have to face God. But in that judgment, in that discernment between right and wrong, good and evil, God will look at you and on account of his son Jesus, he will proclaim you righteous. He will say, you, because you have trusted in my son, get to go into my dwelling place for all eternity. But to those who don't trust the Son, to those who insist on building up their own righteousness, to those who insist on clinging to their idols, on creating their own idea of what is the best life right now, what way I want to go, to those people, they will enter into eternal darkness. At that final judgment, they will not know life. They will not know joy and peace for all eternity. They will know death and destruction. Beloved, this is why it's so critical for us to know Jesus Christ, to look upon him and what he has done upon his cross, to make us righteous by faith alone, apart from any works that we could do, so that if we have Jesus Christ, if we are clinging to him, then even though the judgment is beginning right now at the household of God, even though the hardship, the the pangs of anxiety and tumult that God's judgment brings, even though that has already begun. And even though we experience that in our lives right now through the many different kinds of suffering that we all have to experience, we can understand that this is the grace of God. We can understand that this is part of the plan of God. That this does not surprise God. This is not happening to me just because I did something wrong. Or this is not happening to me because God is too busy to pay any attention to me right now. Or this is not happening to me because God ultimately doesn't have my good in mind. He has my harm in mind. All of those objections can go out the window when we understand what God has done in Jesus Christ to secure us to himself forever and deliver us from judgment. So that even though we experience the effects of judgment, we experience, again, the the hardships that come upon the world, the suffering that is involved in God's judgment, for us who trust in Christ, that is not ultimately destructive, It is ultimately redemptive. And so that's why we as Christians can walk through suffering in this life, understanding that the suffering is coming from God's hand, and at the same time understanding that we have security in the midst of this suffering. So I think that's a big idea of these verses, or at least you could say it's the big idea behind these verses, uh, verses 12 to 19 of 1 Peter 4. Now, to to flesh out the rest of this message, to flesh out the rest of these verses, I really want to take verse 19 itself as my outline. And my apologies, I I didn't realize until we got here this morning that the bulletin says we end in verse 17. We're actually ending in verse uh, 19 this week. So I want to take verse 19 as my outline. So let's look at that together. And then we're going to look at the rest of this passage through this lens of verse 19. It says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, I see three basic parts to this verse. Three parts that, again, encapsulate the rest of these verses that are before us this morning. The first part of this, the part that I've already spoken on to some degree, is therefore let those who suffer according to God's will. Okay, that's the first thing that verse 19 has to say to us, is that suffering is happening according to God's will, right? Not outside of God's will, not unbeknownst to God, but according to God's will. That's the first part of this verse. And that's why our suffering is not surprising. That's why when we experience these first indications of judgment on the world, we're not surprised because this is God's plan. This has been his plan all along. So let those who suffer according to God's will. And then the second part is entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Entrust their souls to a faithful creator. And then the very last phrase we'll look at is while doing good. While doing good. So as I've said, I I hope I've already given some sense of what it means that we suffer according to God's will. But as Peter here says, if we are suffering according to God's will, then as we suffer according to God's will, we should entrust our souls to a faithful creator. What does that mean, to entrust our souls to a faithful creator? Well, I think these verses in front of us this morning highlight three things that it means to entrust our souls to a faithful creator. First, look at verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So the first thing it means to entrust our souls to a faithful creator is that we are actually rejoicing in our sufferings. But how can it be that we rejoice in our sufferings? Well, the second half of verse 13 says that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Well, what is that talking about? What does it mean when his glory is revealed? Well, Peter has already talked about the fact that Jesus is returning in judgment. And when Jesus returns in judgment, he is returning in glory. And so when his glory is revealed means when Jesus is coming in the skies to judge the living and the dead. And Peter is saying that we can actually rejoice and be glad on that day. In other words, when Jesus comes back in his glory and when all the earth is trembling before him because all the earth knows how we have rebelled, how we have sinned against almighty God, when all the earth is trembling on that day, we who have hoped in Christ can actually rejoice and be glad. We won't have to be scared on that day. Because when we see Jesus on that day, yes, he will be more majestic than we ever imagined him to be. But ultimately, we will recognize him as the one whom our souls love. We will recognize him as our savior. We will recognize him as our rescuer, as the one who is coming to put all the world to right so that all the suffering that we have experienced at the hand of those who hate God will finally be brought to an end, will finally be judged. And God's kingdom will be set up forever and ever. 
And so when we see Jesus return on that day, we will rejoice and be glad. And that means that in this present day, when we suffer, we have a reason to rejoice and be glad. Not because we're somehow masochistic and we're just glad when we suffer, like we feel joy and pain or something like that. No, we we recognize the pain that we have. We grieve at our trials. We mourn with one another when bad things happen. And yet we recognize that our, our ultimate life, our best life, is not slated for this time right now. Again, in the story that God is writing, this time that we are living in is a time of judgment. It is a time of testing. It is preparing us for something better. It is a time of preparation. So that means when we experience testing right now, when we experience trial right now, we can actually be happy because we see how it is getting us ready for the ultimate test, for the ultimate judgment of God. You see, there's, there's kind of two basic ways that you can look at the Christian life. Uh, just think of the metaphor of, of flying on an airplane, okay? I think maybe everyone in here has flown on an airplane before sometime in your life. Now, on the airplane, there are certain things that are given to you for your safety, right? And there are other things that are given to you for your comfort. Now, I don't fly as much as I used to, and so usually when I get on a plane, I'm taking a short flight, and when I get on a plane and I sit down in my seat, I don't have a nice little TV screen right in front of me, you know, because it's a small plane, short flight. And whenever I get on a plane and I don't have that TV screen in front of me, I'm always like a little disappointed, you know. I'm always like, man, I could have had a better plane. You know, I could have had my own TV screen right here in front of me. You know, the TV screen is something that is given to us for our comfort. On the other hand, when you get on the plane, again, you also have things that are given to you for your safety, right? So uh, the flight attendant will do her safety briefing, and especially if you're flying across an ocean, I assume it's this way in all planes, but if you're flying across an ocean, they talk to you about how under your seat, or maybe it's your seat cushion itself, I'm not quite sure, is a flotation device, right? So that if you were to go down in the ocean, you would have something to hold on to, and you would be safe when the plane crashes. Now, most of us during our flight probably don't think hardly at all about using our seat cushion as a flotation device, right? Like, most of us probably don't even listen to the safety briefing anymore because we've already heard it a dozen times or more. So we don't pay attention to that. Instead, we're busy, like, tapping on our screen, right, to figure out, oh, what shows, what movies can I possibly see uh, during this flight? And I think this is analogous to two different ways we could view the Christian life, the, the way that Jesus functions in our life. Now, some people, when they come to Jesus, they're told, you know what, you should come to Jesus because when you come to Jesus, he's really going to make your life better. You know, he's going to make this flight easier. He's going to make this flight more enjoyable. You know, this flight being the life that we have to live. And so they're, they're looking at Jesus as essentially being like that little TV screen that they have in the back of their seat. He's there, you know, to make life more enjoyable, to make life more worth living. And then if they become Christian, but all of a sudden their life doesn't get better, it doesn't get easier, 
In fact, suffering seems to come just as much as ever. Maybe they even have more trouble because now when they take a stand for Jesus, they're getting in trouble at work or their friends don't like them as much anymore and so they're losing friends. They might lose their job. All these bad things are happening. They think, well, this TV screen is garbage. It's not making my flight any more enjoyable. I might as well go find something else that's going to make my life more pleasant. And so they end up just leaving Christ behind and trying to go and find some other solution for having the good life. But beloved, if you only come to Jesus because you think that he's going to make your life better here and now, he's going to make you more comfortable here and now, then you have grossly misunderstood the message of Jesus Christ. Again, the The reason why Jesus Christ ultimately came into the world, why he died upon the cross, why he rose again, is not so much to make life here and now better, though there, of course, are ways that we enjoy life more knowing Jesus now. I don't mean to deny that. But the main reason why Jesus Christ came and suffered and died is precisely because there is a judgment coming. Because there is a day coming when God will judge the living and the dead. And there is an eternity that awaits us. Everyone that sits in this room this morning is an eternal creature. You will live forever. Whether you live forever with God in his blissful heavenly home, or whether you live forever separated from God in a place of darkness and torment, And God knows that that eternity is so much longer than this earthly life that goes away in a blink of an eye. And much more than just making us comfortable for a moment while a vast eternity awaits us. God loves us enough. He cares for us enough to want to use our short time on the earth now to prepare us for eternity to prepare us for the future. And beloved, because all of us do have idols, because all of us are still rebelling against God in some ways, that means that one of the instruments that God must use in our life today is the instrument of suffering, is the instrument of stripping things away from us. Because so often it's only through suffering that we discover where our true hope lies. You see, if we never suffer, if we just have a pleasant life, we always have everything we could want. We enjoy everything that God gives. Then we could very well be blind to the fact that our hope, our rest, our enjoyment is in all the things of this world. We could be totally neglecting God, totally not even thinking about God, and very happy because we have all the things of this world that are satisfying us 100%. And in having that, we could be totally deceived because we could think, oh, I'm, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ. I'm hoping in God. But beloved, if you have everything the world could afford and you're enjoying everything the world could afford and you're not needing to live for Christ in any way, how can you be so sure that you really are trusting in Jesus Christ, that you really are living for him? If you're enjoying everything that the world has to afford and yet you claim belief in Christ, it's very likely that Christ is now just an accessory to your life. 
You know, one more purse in your closet, one more pair of shoes for you to have in case things go wrong. But beloved, Christ cannot be accepted in that way. He must be accepted as Lord, Messiah, as all in all. He must be accepted in that way or not be accepted at all. And that is why God must use in our lives, must use the tool of suffering to deprive us of these things that our hearts would otherwise so quickly embrace, so quickly cling to instead of Jesus Christ or cling to alongside Jesus Christ. He must take those things away from us so that we can know, so that we can be tested and be sure, yes, I wasn't loving Jesus just because my life was easy. Or, yes, I really do love Jesus more than this money that I had, more than these friends that I had, more than this job that I had. It's not until those things are taken away from us where we can truly know that, yes, I love Jesus most. I love him more than anything else. And so that is why when suffering comes into our life, we can rejoice, we can be glad, Because we are looking forward to that coming judgment and we know that ultimately one day a verdict will be rendered about whether we have truly trusted in Jesus. And if we have gone through the fire of suffering, the fiery trials that Peter's talking about, if we have gone through that fire and we have held on to Jesus Christ, then we have this hope twice over. That yes, I know I'm hoping in him. The world has been stripped away from me and yet I'm still clinging to him. And when we have that confidence, then we have peace. Then we rejoice and are glad because we know that when eternity comes, we will rejoice and be glad. And so we don't fear suffering. We don't complain when suffering happens. Rather, we find every angle in our suffering to say, thank you, Lord, for depriving me of this also so that I could know that my hope is in you. And I know most of us are not facing the prospect of losing our jobs for faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Maybe many of us are not even facing the prospect of losing friends for faithfulness to Jesus Christ. But all of us are experiencing suffering in some degree. If you're a parent, you're experiencing suffering in some degree, right? Just the hardship that comes with raising children. If you're aging, you're experiencing suffering to some degree, right? As your body breaks down, it doesn't work the way that it used to. If you're a kid, you're even experiencing suffering. We can all experience suffering. And so the question that Peter has for us is, what is going to be your emotional reaction to that suffering? How are you going to frame that suffering in your head? Are you going to say, I want my best life now and I'm not getting it, so I'm angry? Or are you going to say, Lord, I know you're coming back and then eternity awaits. I thank you for this testing that you are giving me. And I'm going to rejoice as I cling to Jesus Christ in the midst of this. Because that gives me all the more confidence for the future. So as we cling to Jesus Christ, we have this hope that no matter how hard life gets now, no matter how bad life gets now, we will be with him in glory. And this gives us joy and rejoicing. So that's the first thing that it means to entrust our souls to a faithful creator. I promise I'll be quicker with the other two. If you look at verse 14, 
If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is the second way that we can entrust ourselves to a faithful creator while we suffer. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is how we do get more enjoyment in this life when we know God. Because what Peter is saying is that when we share Christ's sufferings, which especially includes that idea of being insulted for the name of Christ, the same way that Jesus was insulted, the same way that Jesus was ridiculed by society, when we experience that kind of hardship, that kind of suffering, we are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is talking about a special dispensation of grace that God gives for those who enter into suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And beloved, if you've read any church history, if you've read any missionary biographies, then you know that this is the universal testimony of people that trust in Jesus. That as they experience imprisonment for the name of Jesus, as they experience violence for the name of Jesus, as they experience any kind of opposition, somehow that relationship with Jesus becomes sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. He makes himself more and more known to their souls. Indeed, in the Beatitudes themselves, right? When Jesus is saying who is truly happy in this world, who is truly blessed in this world, he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of false things about you on my account. On that day, rejoice and be glad. Jesus also gave the promise to his disciples that if ever you're brought before the authorities, don't worry about what you're going to say in that hour because the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say. Beloved, it's not very often where God gives us the promise that the Holy Spirit will tell us exactly what to say, that we'll have that kind of union with the Holy Spirit. But that promise comes in when we're under arrest and when we're in prison. I mean, I myself, beloved, I cannot compare my suffering to the suffering of great saints of old, but I got to experience some of that promise myself. Some of you know a bit of my story. When I was serving as a missionary in China, and I was arrested, and I was imprisoned for a short time, and I had to face interrogation. Oh my goodness, the the fellowship that I had with God in those hours, in those moments, was so sweet, was so precious, so far beyond anything that I get day-to-day watching a football game and playing with my kids and, you know, lots of good things in life that I get to enjoy. But, oh, the fellowship that you know with Jesus Christ, the spirit of glory and of God resting upon you when you experience that suffering in the name of Jesus Christ. Beloved, it is so sweet. It is priceless. I hope that maybe just one way that can help you today is just to encourage your heart all the more to evangelism, right? Because so often we don't experience suffering for Jesus Christ because we never dare speak of Jesus Christ, right? Because we're afraid of that suffering. But what Peter is saying is don't be afraid of that suffering. Embrace that suffering. Get excited about that suffering because only then do you experience that spirit of glory and of God. So let's actually, you know, like Peter says, the closing point of this message, we can't go out and just be bullies, right? We can't suffer for doing the wrong thing. So don't go out and be obnoxious or anything like that. But as Peter says, with gentleness and respect, 
Tell others about Jesus Christ. Let the rejection that you experience there, let the hostility that you experience there, let that sweeten your fellowship with God the Father and God the Son in the Holy Spirit. You will not regret it. It will be better than any type of earthly pleasure you could have. And so pursue that kind of enjoyment. So that's another way that we entrust ourselves to God as a faithful creator. We entrust that he will be near to us in those moments. And then lastly, verse 17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, then what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? The way that we entrust ourselves to God in the sense that this verse is speaking of is we understand that the time of judgment that we're in, that the hardship that we're undergoing is indeed part of God's plan. And if it's part of God's plan, that means that he has an end time set to it. He has an extent to which it will go no further. We have the promise of God. Do we not in 1 Corinthians 10, 13? No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Beloved, God is not going to let you suffer so much. He's not going to let you undergo so much hardship that you have no option but to break in your faith or to abandon God. He is going to let you suffer. He is going to test your faith. You are going to experience dark nights of the soul. You are going to wonder at times, can I hold on any longer? And yet in those moments, know that yes, I can hold on because God knows what I can handle. And nothing is outside of his plan. Nothing is outside of his control. He's not going to crush me. This is part of his will. This is part of his plan. And so if it is, then we can endure and we can be faithful until the end as we entrust ourselves to him. And so as we suffer according to God's will, we entrust our souls to a faithful creator. And then the last part of this verse, the last point of the sermon, it'll be short, while doing good. So what do we do when we're suffering? Yes, we're entrusting our souls to a faithful creator. We're trusting God to bring us through. But how do we move on day to day? What is it that we're supposed to be about? We're supposed to be about good works while doing good. This is Peter's main point in verse 15 and 16. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Beloved, suffering is always a temptation to leave behind the things of God and to find the things of comfort from the world. That's what suffering always does to us. It's Satan coming against us to say, look, this, this God thing isn't working out. This obedience thing, it isn't worth it. Why don't you just embrace the comfort that the world can give? And what Peter's saying is that when suffering comes, keep this eternal perspective. Remember how faithful your creator is. That none of this is happening by accident. And then what do you do? You persevere in doing good. You bear the weight of that suffering. 
You understand that this is the time that we live in, that this is the the part of the story that God has placed us in, and then you get to work. (laughs) You do good. You understand the will of God. What is it that God wants you to do? And you seek to go out and do it. You don't abandon your faith. You don't turn to sin, but rather you cling to Jesus Christ and you live in the way that he calls you to live. And in this way, your hope for eternity grows and grows. Your relationship with your Savior grows and grows. Your fellowship with Him is deeper and deeper. And so when that day of judgment finally does come, whether it's us who see Jesus returning on the clouds or whether it comes after we die, when that day of judgment comes, we won't tremble, wondering like, oh Lord, did I really hold up under pressure? Instead, we will have all the joy in the world, all the confidence in the world, because we know that we were tested and we held fast in righteousness. And so, beloved, let that describe us as a people. Let that describe us as individuals. Let's entrust ourselves to God while doing good, not surprised at the suffering when it comes. Would you join me in prayer now for ourselves? Would you pray prayers of confession as we realize ways that we've fallen short of the standard that God has given? And let's also pray for the needs of the world around us as we, the kingdom of priests, intercede on behalf of the world in God's throne. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are the faithful creator that you won't give us suffering beyond what we can handle, that in the midst of our suffering, you will be near to us and you will strengthen us, and that your suffering ultimately is a means for us to have greater confidence at the coming judgment. Lord, we trust you to do what is right. Would you help us to rejoice in our suffering so that we can glorify you in everything that happens? Would you hear our prayers now as your people?